Hello there and thank you for downloading the Agendas podcast from the 13th of December. And during our programme, a final deal at the COP28 Climate Change Summit in Dubai was approved. It was a surprise move. It came a lot quicker than many of us expected, but we managed to get analysis from CNN's lead correspondent on COP28. That's Eleni Jokos. And we also spoke to environment analyst Ruth Townend from the think tank Chatham House. Meanwhile, the latest chicken run movie seems to encourage a vegetarian diet. Could it put children off chicken nuggets for good? Well, we found out with Richard McIlwain from the Vegetarian Society. And as the UAE reveals its public holiday schedule for 2024, we found out why you might get a six-day break. And we discussed the top travel trends of next year. Plus, why Google is getting involved in the travel industry. And Chris McCarty brought us up to date with all the latest sports news. Plus, we had a bit of a tech roundup looking at Google's 25-year anniversary and also what's changed at WhatsApp. Delegates at the COP28 Climate Summit in Dubai have agreed to transition away from using fossil fuels. My colleagues and friends, you did step up. You showed flexibility and you put common interest ahead of self-interest. We have the basis to make transformational change happen. That is the voice of conference president, His Excellency Dr. Sultan al Jaba, just shortly after that declaration. Hearing no objection, it is so decided. Now, in just a minute, we're going to get analysis of what that historic vote actually means. But first, here were the scenes when we crossed live to his conference a little earlier today. It has been a personal privilege for me to have the opportunity to guide this conference. I am humbled by the commitment I have seen and the unwavering efforts I have personally witnessed. I would like to express my deepest gratitude to all who made this happen, to every country who came and made this COP a success, I say thank you, to every single participant, everyone I met in this very special place, I say thank you. You have come in record numbers. You care deeply about the future of this wonderful planet, and so do I. Right, turning our attention now to a bit of analysis. Uh, How significant actually is this successful vote? How important is this document? Let's find out more, and I'm delighted to be joined again by Eleni Gokos, who is CNN anchor and correspondent. She's been leading CNN's COP28 coverage. Eleni, we... I mean, did you expect uh, this announcement this quickly? It it was a shock for us here at Dubai I 103.8. I don't think we expected an agreement so fast. Well, to be honest, I mean, you have people... We went into overtime yesterday, and this announcement was delayed because it does show how, you know, divided people were. Um, And the big, you know, sticking point was what to do with fossil fuels. Now... How quickly this was voted on today, yes, that was really fast. It was a fast turnaround. 
um, because we assume that they were working overnight. But just hearing Sultan Al Jabo there and you know talking about how historic this is, and it absolutely is. Make no mistake, fossil fuels being included in this agreement. He was also just talking about the fact that it's a transition away from fossil fuels. This is incredibly important. Yes, they weren't able to bring in phase down or phase out of fossil fuels, but I guess this is finding common ground of what to do with that that wording. Um, what is also fascinating is, look, the unabated word, um, the, the phasing down of unabated coal. We must focus on that word unabated. That basically means that coal can still be used as long as there's carbon sequestration that is attached to that. And that for many people is a loophole, um, which could actually open a door for the use of fossil fuels down the line as long as there's kind of some, some technology attached to it to, to sequester carbon. Even given those issues and the loophole, um, this is world first, to be completely frank. Sultan al mentions this. He says there's many firsts that we haven't seen in a COP agreement. Is it enough? I mean, you'll hear from activists and many, um, you know, that were pushing for far stronger wording that will say it isn't enough, but it's good enough for now. And, you know, the, the slogan of COP, and I, you know, I was looking at the sign, um, you know, all over the, the conference area, and it was, you know, act unite or unite act and deliver i would add one more word to that and i would say implement because you've got to implement all these action points and they have been capped specifically on financing it is included in the agreement that the developed world has not acted enough on the financing there are huge gaps can the world act together now to fill those gaps we've got one year before this conference moves to azerbaijan another oil producing nation you know, can everyone come together to, to act with urgency? That would be, you know, one of the important moves from this. Um, the very successful COP28 by many accounts. Yeah, very interesting that you mentioned that, the, the implementation, uh, because uh, His Excellency Dr. Sultan al-Jabba did add a note of caution for nations. He said an agreement is only as good as its implementation. We are what we do, not what we say. We have seen in the past, I mean, I just need to mention, you know, the, the Paris Agreement, where everyone made all sorts of agreements, but, but no one stuck to them at all. Do you think that nations are now ready to act on their word? Well, I mean, he also mentions this, right? He mentions the Paris Agreement, but it's eight years on. And, and frankly, even in this agreement, there is, you know, I guess they admitted that the, we failed to, to on so many fronts on, on from the Paris Agreement, specifically with the $100 billion per year that was promised by developed economies. And one of the, the issues is, you know, you're hearing, oh, there aren't enough backable projects and perceptions of risk are an issue. And how do we de-risk projects? So to your question we actually see movement on this, it really does lie in the hands of the developed economies and and the fossil uh, fuel producing nations and how much they can invest. And also up to the private sector. While we have seen spots of, you know, um, excitement and we have seen some advancements on on some fronts, it's not nearly enough. And I think when we're we're talking about the hottest beer on record, and by the way, we're going to to screen past what we saw this year into next year, can we maintain that 1.5 degree Celsius heating of the planet, I'm, I'm not really sure. I mean, I speak to a lot of the financing guys and the banks, and, and to be honest, it's still these financing mechanisms that's tripping everyone up. My sense is that they have to get rid of these legacy 
you know, financial instruments that are holding people back. And it's the global south that suffers, by the way. When we see these huge numbers being pledged and committed, very little is trickling down in terms of mitigation, adaptation in emerging markets. And also this amazing loss and damage fund, $85 billion that is being put together. How are they going to deploy it? How is that going to be measured? Who gets to tap into that fund? Is The answer is absolutely no. Um, so while I think everyone came together to find this consensus, which you know is vitally important, how we act from tomorrow, from today, when we go, when all these delegates go home, is going to be very telling. Um, and it, it does unfortunately come down to just how much money everyone has, how much uh, fiscal room they have to be able to deploy some of these changes and increasing renewable energy capacity, for example, which is one of the calls to action. Um, I'm going to be very curious to see how how this plays out in real time. Eleni, thank you so much for your time. As you can hear there, uh, we caught Eleni on the hop. In fact, this, this because she's actually driving from, um, uh, I think she's driving to Abu Dhabi at the moment. Um, Eleni Giorcos, CNN anchor and correspondent. Uh, she's been leading the channel's COP28 coverage and just gives you an indication there of how unexpected this announcement was. We are just beginning to get some reaction from that uh, plenary hall where all the delegates are gathered. So Certainly, there is a sense of shock at how quickly the deal was sort of graveled, how, how quickly that deal was announced, because we are only now hearing from various other delegates. For example, the Bangladeshi delegate is speaking right now. We heard uh, also from the Samoan delegate. Now, he was really quite critical of, of this agreement. He suggested that um, in many ways, maybe this deal wasn't made with their agreement. Uh, he suggested that the exclusive focus on energy systems is disappointing. They are running uh, through line by line the parts of the deal that they didn't agree with. And they also said they were a little confused by the approval of the deal before the Alliance of Small Island States had a chance to share their views. So we are getting a sense of both the energy that was in the room, a sense of um, congratulation, a sense of exuberance, but also potentially a sense that things were rushed or that things happened very quickly in the final moments. And of course, that is something that often happens in in COP meetings. Things change on a dime. We remember uh, back at the Glasgow agreement, uh, right in the last few minutes, there was a change on the wording regarding fossil fuels. uh, And a a disagreement there between India and China was apparently behind that change. So there's certainly a sense that 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 there's that there is more information coming out of uh, the conference center up at Expo City. Um, also worth mentioning that. Uh there are groups of independent NGOs, academics and activists also gathered on site at Expo City uh, in order to observe and, and to influence the delegates at this COP28 summit. Certainly the suggestions there is that the mood in that space is a little more sombre. Um, there was no, for example, standing ovation when the gravel was brought down. In fact, the mood was a little more subdued. Um, apparently people there, activists there, also shocked at the speed at which this agreement was pushed through. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley on Dubai Eye 103.8. 
We are discussing the fact that delegates at the COP28 climate summit in Dubai have reached an agreement. They have agreed to transition away from fossil fuels. It is a moment of huge excitement, certainly for these delegates who were there as His Excellency Dr. Sultan Al-Jabba made the announcement. My colleagues and friends, you did step up. You showed flexibility and you put common interest ahead of self-interest. We have the basis to make transformational change happen. Now, it is really interesting because after that initial elation, the conference is now hearing from all of the other countries who were present. And I have to admit, many of them are expressing severe or acute grief. And there is no doubt a massive compromise was made by many of the nations. Uh, It is still a done deal. This is just the opportunity for countries to express their views while the world is watching. Let's get analysis of this deal. Let's find out just how good it is. I'm delighted to be joined on the line now by Ruth Townend, who is a research fellow in the Environment and Society Centre at Chatham House. Uh, Joining us now live on the line. Uh, Ruth, I'd love to get your reaction to this agreement uh, because of course you've been to several cops you you watched you're a, you're a cop watcher uh, and what do you think of the deal that has been reached this morning well i think that dr sultan aljabar has achieved uh, quite a feat to pull off an agreement between countries that have hugely differing views and differing interests in addressing climate change um The deal that has been agreed is not, as you say, as ambitious as some need it to be, because for many countries, the difference between keeping climate change to 1.5 degrees and it going over that threshold is the difference between life and death. Um, But this deal does show a path forward on which uh, countries can now choose to tread. However, there are a lot of potential sidetracks on that path. So the deal talks about... um, technological fixes which might not come to realisation and it also talks a lot about differentiated responsibility. Now this is really important particularly for developing countries who might not have the means to move as fast as other countries do Um, but one thing that I felt was missing was perhaps impetus for those that do have the means to go much further and much faster to compensate for that inequality in countries' abilities to act. So much of this document comes down to semantics on one level. And I know that there has been quite a lot of criticism that the the language used wasn't proactive enough and it was it, it sort of offered optionality and in fact even His Excellency Dr Sultan Al-Jabba said an agreement is only as good as its implementation. We are what we do, not what we say. Has... Has it left too much wriggle room, do you think? Has it left too much wriggle room there for people, for countries to sort of manoeuvre around their promises? Text does tend to be largely symbolic. Although the Paris Agreement process is legally binding, attempts to enforce uh, the legal elements of the Paris Agreement are still um, in their infancy. Um, So what we needed to come out of this meeting was a very clear signal to the world that fossil fuels are not the way forward for development, that economies that rely greatly on fossil fuels will need to consider their transition and how their economies can thrive 
in a world that moves beyond fossil fuels. Um, in some ways, the text has done this. So, uh, shockingly, um, this is the first time that fossil fuels, um, that the words fossil fuels have appeared in a COP text, despite um, obviously they have a, a very substantial role in climate change. So they have been described as the elephant in the room of the COP negotiations. Um, and the fact that Dr. Sultan Aldabar was able to negotiate that agreement where there was strong opposition to even using those words, I do think is an achievement. But we have uh, at least two more very significant COPs ahead of us now as we work to um, towards the COP in Brazil in 2030, which is when countries will revise their national plans for what they do to tackle climate change. And as emphasised this morning, those plans really, really need to be brought in line with that ambition of keeping climate change to that magical threshold of 1.5 degrees. Every fraction of a degree matters, but at that point, the risks that we face hugely increase. Um, so we will see how, how countries manage to tread that path in the years that come. Ruth Townend, thank you so much for joining us very unexpectedly on the line. Uh, we've been chasing around at the moment because none of us expected the agreement to come so quickly, uh, but it is fantastic to get such immediate reaction to uh, that report. So thank you very much indeed, Ruth Townend, Research Fellow in the Environment and Society Centre at the think tank at Chatham House. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley on Dubai Eye 103.8. We are going to turn our attention away now from climate change to a much more prosaic subject in many ways because I've got a question for you. Have you booked your holidays for 2024? Well, the UAE government has released its unified public holidays calendar for 2024. You might remember that they uh, unified it for the public and the private sector. And our next day off is fast approaching because January the 1st, 2024 actually falls on a Monday. So we are going to be starting our new year with a long weekend. Plus, it looks like we might have a six-day public holiday for Eid in April, or even nine days if Ramadan works out as 30 days long. So what are you going to do with these holidays? Well, dozens of senior figures from the travel industry are actually coming together this week to discuss trends at the Dubai Tourism Summit and the Skift Global Forum East. Now, topics on the agenda include the future of travel, sustainability, and how artificial intelligence is shaping the future of travel. And intriguingly, one of the keynote speakers is from Google, a company that I suppose I wouldn't naturally associate with the travel industry. Um, but apparently they are keen to make it easier for you and I to book our flights, to book our holidays and to explain how they're doing that. Joining us now is Marie de Ducla, who leads on uh, large accounts for Google in travel, fast moving consumer goods, tech and automotive. All of that at Google. Marie, thank you so much for joining me on Microsoft Teams. Lovely to have you joining us. Tell me a little bit more about uh, Google and travel and how the two are linked because like I said it's not obvious to me. Look Google has a mission to make uh, you know the information useful and accessible to everyone across the world and it's the same in the travel space so we've been innovating in this space for the past uh, 20 years and we have launched products like Google Flights, Google Hotels making it easier to explore find and book both. 
uh, we're also uh, helping people, sh um, you know, find their attractions, uh, the information, what to do, the tickets to book, the reservation on things to do in the destination where they're going to. Uh, we also have products like Street View and Immersive Maps and uh, as well Google Arts and Culture to visit uh, your favorite museum in a different way. I've just realised just how much you do because obviously I've used all of those services but without sort of realising because Google has almost become like breathing. You sort of use it without realising. I understand that also Bard, your artificial intelligence sort of um, chatbot that, that, is, that, that you're sort of wrapping into your services now, that Bard has also got a sort of travel component. Well, look, um, generative AI, which is... Uh, uh, which is powering um, BARD and especially our latest uh, Gemini release, which is our um, most capable um, Gen AI tool yet, uh, is uh, is definitely going to be part of the search journey. Um, so we were going to, in, uh, to upgrade our search journey uh, with uh, uh, in uh, integrating generative AI within your search experience, which means that when you're going to search, uh, we call it the search generative experience. So which means that when, when you're going to search uh, on Google search, you're going to have um, kind of generative um, seamless interactions with the search engine, giving you answers from the cheapest flight to book to the to the best gear to purchase for your next ski trip and how to train for your next marathon. All of this within the search page. But you can also use BARD um, uh, independently of Google search and make it your best travel companion and ask uh, and plan, you know, uh, you know, your next holidays that used to take you weeks and weeks um, to plan uh, all in the same conversation with Bard. Ask for your next uh, week long trip uh, in your favorite destination, include flights and hotels that are suitable for your family and include, uh, you know, the specific activities that you would like to do. And all this in a simple conversation. So it should definitely ease the process for travellers. Do you know, I actually, and I'm mentioning another service here, my apologies in the middle of an interview with Google, but um, I used ChatGPT to do that for my last holiday. We went to Turkey and I asked for it. Uh, I told it who I was and that I had two children and their ages and the fact they were boys and they were energetic. And I asked them for a, I asked them for a seven day um, schedule basically and and the the search engine or the the chat the chatbot basically did come up with a very good set of ideas and and we actually did follow quite a lot of the ideas that were suggested so I, I in that sense I can understand how a, a chatbot could almost act like a, a travel agent for you you know how Google sort of learns your preferences to a certain extent through the search engine. Are you using that data to sort of mould the amount of information that, that's being sent to people as well? Well, um, look, in general, um, the idea of personalization at scale in the travel industry has always been a very uh, difficult uh, you know, tension point because the travel industry always wanted to give personalization at scale and was always very difficult to get. But now with AI, this is loosening up really this tension and it's for the first time allowing, um, you know, the travel industry to really propose and offer personalized experiences. So uh, with the amount of information that people want uh, to share, uh, because they always have the choice to share the information or even in their prompt to the generative AI to give as many information as they want, uh, the, the personalization will be adapted to this, uh, to this info. Uh, but I guess a lot of people will find it very useful and uh, it will save a lot of time. 
And so as far as, uh, so if I come to the site, I'm just thinking, so I book a flight, will Google then automatically suggest other options? If, I've, if I'm asking for a flight, will you naturally sort of um, suggest possible itineraries if I want to rent a car, a hotel, you know, those types of ideas? Is that how, um, from, a, from a user platform, is that how it'll work? Well, I think there will be a lot of evolution. Uh, we are just at the beginning of uh, generative AI, and even our search uh, generative experience is very new. Uh, so I think there is a lot that we will discover as we as we speak. But uh, definitely with a prompt, uh, people can get to know as many other uh, information as they want. So depending on what people want, really the tool will be uh, as useful as the prompt is, basically. Really interesting stuff. I, I, you know, you never think when we have this conversation about artificial intelligence replacing certain roles, I'm always slightly preoccupied about how it's going to replace my role on the radio. But but clearly there is no need for travel agents anymore either. Uh, Marie, thank you so much for your time. Lovely to have you join us on the agenda on Dubai Eye 103.8. Uh, you've just been listening to the voice of Marie de Ducla. She, uh, she is in charge of uh, travel, fast moving consumer goods, tech and automotive at Google. Really uh, Really fascinating stuff. And uh, Marie is one of the keynote speakers at this upcoming SCIFT uh, conference and also at the Dubai Tourism Summit, which is happening at Atlantis, uh, the Royal, over the next couple of days. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley on Dubai Eye 103.8. Now, we are going to turn our attention to a few tech stories that are making headlines at the moment, uh, partly because Google is celebrating its 25th anniversary by releasing its most searched terms. And in many ways, it's like a journey through the sort of trends of our shared past. Have, have a listen. They've made a video of it, which is very helpful of them. Ow! No, don't worry. Here we go. Tranquility base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Liftoff of STS-7 and America's first woman astronaut. But in a moment, the 1980s will be arriving. What a decade it is coming up. So those are just some of the most popular Googled terms. But here are the others. Cristiano Ronaldo, the most searched athlete. LeBron James, he claims the title of the most searched, most valuable player. And Virat Kohli emerges as the most searched cricketer. Uh, if you then turn your attention to the more sort of fictional characters... Um, Pikachu from Pokemon uh, secures the position of the most searched. My kids would agree with that one. Uh, meanwhile, Harry Potter wins as the movie franchise with the most searched cast. Although, worth mentioning, Bollywood stands out as the most searched movie genre, as this film released by the Google firm makes clear. Pikachu, I choose you! Pikachu! Mr. Potter... I'd just like to say thanks. Homer Simpson. Homer Simpson. Please stop doing that. This really is a golden age of Indian cinema. Welcome to my world. I'll tell you already. Look around, everybody. Y'all won that one.
Yeah, and there is Beyonce, of course, closing uh, one element of that uh, video. Well worth taking a look at, actually. I'll post it on our social media at Dubai 1038. Um, but yeah, 1038 FM, in fact. Um, but yeah, really, really interesting to, to see the different trends that have caught our eyes and the different sort of most searched terms. Uh, it's not the only tech story in town, though, because WhatsApp has also made a small but significant change to its messaging platform. Uh, Apparently, it is set to improve the privacy of voice messages for its 2 billion users. I hate voice messages, but I know that they are very popular uh, here in Dubai. Uh, Earlier, I spoke to Rami Kayali. He is chief technology officer at the Dubai cybersecurity firm, The Colonel. He explains how it works, what's changed. It's a big deal for people who are looking for it. You know how in WhatsApp, you have the ability to send a text message that disappears after a person reads it or deletes itself after a certain period of time. Or you can send a photo that after the recipient views it, it automatically deletes itself. Well, WhatsApp didn't have this feature for voice notes, and now it does. So it's just part of what WhatsApp have been doing to increase the features related to privacy and data security. It's a nice feature to have. Okay, so it's a privacy improvement. But realistically, How protected are your messages on the platform anyway? I mean, we all know they're encrypted, but what does that actually mean? Um, Rami says it all depends on who you are and how many or how much people want to access your correspondence. WhatsApp a few years ago introduced what they call end-to-end encryption. And this is a really nice feature because it means that if anyone whatsoever gets a copy of all your text messages while they're being transmitted, they won't be able to read them. Now, that feature is much more important, at least from my point of view, than voice notes that disappear. Because at the end of the day, if someone really wants to, you know, keep track of these messages or photos or videos, there is always a way. They will find a way. And just because a message disappears, what's stopping a person from literally having a small dictaphone, a recorder, playing that disappearing message once near that dictaphone and making a copy of it. If someone is adversarial intentionally, then, you know, the only protection is not to use the software in the first place. Go and meet face to face. Rami Kayali there bringing us up to date with the latest security change to WhatsApp. Uh, Rami Kayali, of course, Chief Technology Officer at the Dubai cybersecurity firm, The Colonel. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley on Dubai Eye 103.8. We are uh, also keeping an eye firmly on everything that is going on around the world as well. And oddly enough, in many ways, the next one fits in quite nicely with the theme of animal rights and and protections uh, because a new movie that is out on Friday focuses on the dramatic rescue of a flock of chickens from a chicken nugget factory. The truck's taking chickens to some kind of farm. Well, hey, that doesn't look so bad. Oh, that looks so (gasps) bad. Who knows what horrors Molly is dealing with in there? Huh? Come on, let's play. (laughs) There's something strange about this place. Behold, the dawn of the nugget. Yeah, that's a snippet of Chicken Run, Dawn of the Nugget. Uh, Filmmakers of the sequel claim it wasn't 
designed to encourage children to go vegetarian. But that isn't stopping campaigners from celebrating the movie's message. People like Richard McIlwain, who is the CEO of the Vegetarian Society. He told me he thinks the film could persuade people to change their eating habits. There's a whole segment of people out there who don't watch animal rights films or the films on Netflix that have convinced people to go vegan, like Cowspiracy. And so you need to bring these issues to a broader mainstream audience. And this is why we're sort of quite excited by this film, because it gently introduces some fairly basic concepts like where does our food come from? So if it does nothing else but makes people aware that chicken nuggets don't grow on trees or are dug up by farmers, but they actually do come from live chickens, wonderful, intelligent, emotional, sentient animals. And it encourages people, particularly a younger audience, to think a little bit more than the fact that they don't necessarily become vegetarian or vegan overnight is is not the thing. There is certainly a big focus on animal welfare in the film. But I mean, do you think that this is a deliberate ploy of the filmmakers I ask that because it is interesting that many of the star actors of the film are either vegan or vegetarian. So that feels like more than just a coincidence. It could be. Yeah. I mean, I, the simple answer, I don't know. I mean, I've not been involved in the film's production, but yeah, at the end of the day, you know, what will be successful in terms of revenue and getting people bums on seats won't be whether it's a vegan morality film, it'll be whether it's fun. <laughs> because that's, you know, that's the audience is trying to engage, isn't it? So, and that's what's really interesting on this for me, because, you know, how many good causes and, and themes do come through lenses like humour? You know, if you can actually introduce what is, for many people, a very serious issue about animal welfare and animal rights through a a funny, humorous film. I, that, I think that, for me, is the most interesting part of this, actually. Because I think if you had a, a sombre David Attenborough-style documentary, it would appeal to some people, but for a vast number of people, it would probably be a, a big turn-off. They may not even watch it. And so in answer to your question, have a juice has got something of a, a slight ulterior motive in here? Possibly. <laughs> but, you know, hey, I run something called the Vegetarian Society. So, you know, I, for me, that's good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what's so interesting is that obviously, as you mentioned there, this is a, a humorous approach to the subject. But there actually have been some very powerful, very successful from the point of view of activism programs on Netflix that have actually changed people's behavior. Do you think you've seen a wave of vegetarianism and a wave of veganism because of these documentaries? There's been earthlings, forks over knives, but I think the two that get referred to, cowspiracy and seaspiracy, which is a look behind the scenes at what's actually happening. Now, I think they do play a little fast and loose with some of the evidence there, and they've been critiqued for that, but actually it did bring what's going on behind the scenes in terms of the impact on our environment, on our climate, our biodiversity, of our demand for meat and our demand for, for fish to a much bigger audience. And, you know, I give lots of talks and I go to lots of exhibitions and lots of people come up to me and say, you know, I, I watched that and I have become vegetarian or I've become vegan or I've cut down on my meat and I'm really interested in the issue now. But I still think it's a minority of people who are watching those films. And the wonderful thing about the second Chicken Run film is that it's going to get to a much broader audience because people aren't going to see it thinking, I'm a vegan activist, I want to watch a film that really supports what I do. 
it's going to introduce the topic to a broader range of people. And, and I think for those people who might say, you know, oh, come on, you're just brainwashing a generation of children. I was like, well, no, I would say we're educating a generation of children. There's no, there's nothing to be gained by having a generation of people who don't know where their food comes from. Nothing to be gained at all. You know, we've got huge levels of obesity, of type 2 diabetes, of heart disease in developed countries all over the world and increasingly in developing countries as they also embrace meat-heavy diets. And I do think, you know, the first step to changing behaviour is raising awareness and educating people and giving them the tools. And as I say, if you can do it in a fun and friendly way, but with a serious message, then I can't not admire what the producers of the film are, are trying to do. Richard McIlwain there, CEO of the Vegetarian Society, bringing us uh, a little bit more information and a little bit of reaction uh, to that brand new cartoon that comes out on Friday, Chicken Run, Dawn of the Nugget. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley on Dubai Eye 103.8. Welcome back to the agenda. Right, it's time to find out exactly what is going on in the sport, the sporting world, I suppose. Our sports editor, Chris McCarty, as ever, has sent us a report. Um, but he's, he's somewhere slightly different today. Uh, let's see if you can guess why and where. Good morning, Georgia. Happy Wednesday. How are you? And Well, today I don't come to you from the manicured fairways of the wonderful golf courses we've got around Dubai. Oh, no, I come to you from a soft play area. It is daddy daycare duty for me today. Looking after the wee ones, they're having a thoroughly good time. Of course, the product of schools finishing a little bit too early for my liking. But that's a conversation for a different day. As for the sport, well, again, we've got to start with the UEFA Champions League action of last night. Victory for Bayern Munich at Old Trafford. Came as no real surprise. Manchester United, we spoke about it in great detail yesterday. They needed a victory in front of their adoring public and in the end it was insepid it was anything that uh, well it was everything we didn't need it last night from a united perspective they blew hot and then cold and in the end it was mainly cold because they came a cropper one nil it finished kingsley coleman with the only goal of the game deep into the second half in truth by munich they didn't have to get out of second gear manchester united failed to land a glove on them and Incredibly, having fought so hard to get there, Manchester United's European season is done and dusted. They finished bottom of Group A behind Bayern, who topped the group, FC Copenhagen, as well as Galatasaray, Copenhagen and Bayern. Then they bounce in to the last 16 of the Champions League, Galatasaray. They're demoted into the Europa League in Man United. They have only got now the league and the Emirates FA Cup to contend with this campaign. It goes from bad to worse. That's now 24 games played, 12 defeats this season. And they've got this wee small matter of Liverpool this coming weekend. Elsewhere, Real Madrid, they were victorious. Six games, six wins. They had already qualified, but Carlo Ancelotti's men once again underlining why they are one of the teams to look out for. Arsenal, they drew over at Eindhoven, PSV, a result that didn't matter. Arsenal themselves had already qualified for the tournament. And uh, well, that's a wrap from last night's Champions League action. You've got another night 
of Champions League action this evening, but not too many storylines in truth. I guess AC Milan's journey to Newcastle. Newcastle hoping to win and that results go their way elsewhere. They need a Borussia Dortmund win over PSG. Newcastle injury hit Newcastle. Need a win themselves at home to AC Milan if they are to continue their Champions League journey this season. So that gets you bang up to date with your sport. I'm going to get back to the girls now. Cheers, Georgia. Mr. McCarty, uh, very grateful to him uh, for working even while parenting. Uh, something that, of course, to be honest, most of us have to do most days. But it is lovely to hear Chris there. Down at the soft play with the girls. Uh, he will be on your airwaves from 5pm. I don't think they're coming into work with him, but he'll be on air from 5 until 8 this afternoon with your drive time show. <laughs> The agenda is live Monday to Friday from 10am till 1pm.